scripture reading is from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 25. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Good morning. So good to have everybody out today. We, have a, a, we do have a good group, a good large group, and lots of visitors, and we very much appreciate uh, having you, you with us today. Today, much of the, of the world, as has been said a couple times already, and it's obvious even if we hadn't said it, uh, much of the world, uh, it, it recognizes this day as Easter. And there are numerous theories as to the origins of the term Easter. Um, if you're using a, a more modern English Bible, you won't find the word in there. Some of the older versions of the King James Version used it, I believe. But Easter throughout Christian history has represented the Sunday when Jesus, who had been crucified the Friday before on a Roman cross, was resurrected from the dead. That's the central claim. That's the, the bedrock tenet, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of the Christian faith. That's what Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's summarizing it. And so it's this idea of power, a level of power that's you know, mind-blowing to us, that just reorients our view of reality, really. Power over death. The power of life triumphing over death. And that's what we're going to focus on for a few minutes this morning. That Jesus had power over death was and is very relevant, very practical. It has concrete implications for all humankind. Because if you think about it, we face death almost as a way of life. Like, you know, we'd like to think it's a thing that happens, some discrete event off in the future. Kind of, it's more accurate probably to say just we're, we're surrounded by death. It hangs over our existence. Um, loved ones die. Stars die. I don't mean Hollywood stars. They die too, but I mean like, you know, in the heavens. Empires fall. Businesses fail. Our own plans and our dreams often crash and burn. Greg was mentioning, you know, planting things in the garden. I hate to say this. Everybody's got spring fever right now, and you can't even get into Home Depot or Lowe's or garden centers. I hate to say it, but I will bet you that half the plants folks are purchasing at the garden center right now will be dead by July 4th. Right? They either don't belong here, should have never been sold in our zone, or they're just thinking all you do is stick it in a hole in the ground and walk off. Or a thousand other reasons. I don't even know why half mine die. They just die. Right? They have a tendency to do that. There's an entropy that, that affects everything in the world around us. And I, I'm not trying to be cynical. It's just that death is woven throughout life. Is it not? Paul said the whole creation is subject 
to the bondage of corruption in Romans 8.21. Everything is corruptible. It's vulnerable to decay and death. And this corruption, Paul says, keeps the world in a kind of bondage. It's a kind of slavery that, that that's hanging over us all the time. And so we live our lives in the midst of death. And if we're not careful, the prospect of death can come to define us. Our life can be nothing more than trying to keep death at bay, trying to deny death, delay death, act like it's not there. But it, it's, it's like our lives become defined by death. So my question this morning for us to consider is, what does the resurrection of Christ have to say about all that? What's the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus for the fact that we, if we're honest and observant, live our lives in an atmosphere of death. In John chapter 11, the, the, the verse that Randy just read for us, Jesus' good friend, a man by the name of Lazarus, has just died. His sisters, Mary and Martha, were grieving, as were many of their friends who, who've come to Bethany, their, their hometown, to comfort them. And Jesus arrives and that's when we pick up the reading that Randy just shared with us from John chapter 11. And I want you to notice something. <clears throat> Jesus says this. Um, and, and he's saying this to, think about this. All of the people he's speaking to are going to die one day, right? Every one of them in the audience. And yet he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall die. He live. How can he say that? With death all around, suffusing this world, permeating this world, Jesus says that living, truly living, like a real life, is possible. And the reason he gives is that he is the resurrection and the life. You know, it's interesting when, when God says, let me net it out for you, here's who I am. First John you know, says God is what? Love. Love, right. Jesus is the word, John 1. That's another good one, Jeremy. And there's, there's so many of these where God says, you know, I am the God of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the poor. About 100,000 times in the, in the Old Testament. Not really 100,000, but a lot. Or, you know, something like, here Jesus is saying, I am like resurrection and life embodied. And we think back to the creation story in, in Genesis 1, that it is the word of God that brings life where there had been emptiness, right? He fills the void by, because God is life. Um, Jesus is the light and the life, according to John 1. Here he says he's the resurrection and the life. So what we want to look at this morning for a few minutes is how the resurrection fosters life, really, truly living in the midst of death. And let me suggest three ways. There are many more, I'm sure. Three I'm thinking of this week. Life beyond the grave, perhaps the most obvious one, the one that our minds run to first, the one that's already been mentioned in Greg's excellent talk and in, in uh, uh, you know, Greg's announcements earlier, the other Greg. Well, we got several Gregs. Greg Spears' announcement, he, he refers to, to, to the resurrection as well. And everybody you know, knows this is one of the main claims of Christianity, I think, that knows anything about it at all. Life beyond death. Few things are more certain than death, right? Uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, we read that not only is, is the fear of death a universal fear, I don't care how many John Wayne movies you've watched, the Bible says this is what the children of men do, they fear death, all, all of us. 
And, and not only that, not only universal, it's kind of debilitating. It is, to use the word in Hebrews 2.15, uh, enslaving. Love the button on this clicker. <clears throat> Sometimes if somebody in the audience thinks about it going forward, not even me, it advances. Um, I think. So here's what he says, the writer of Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, took, uh, of the, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Death has a power over us. That is the devil. And deliver all those. He's saying this is the case for the children of humanity. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's enslaving, this fear it takes away our freedom. We can't really live. Our hearts may be ticking, but that's not a life. Because there is this burden, this cloud that just permeates the, our lives and the world around us. Think of all the extremes that human beings go to to avoid death, to delay death, to deny death, to distract themselves to death, you know, so they don't have to think about it. Nothing scarier than quiet and stillness. And they got to look at themselves and think about their real existence. And so they take up hobbies, you know, uh, ad infinitum. They, they, they work themselves silly. They do anything they can. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to knock anybody personally if you've done this, but when you watch certain shows on TV, certain award shows with celebrities and whatnot, it's almost like there's so much plastic work done that it's almost like this is a different tribe of, of being. You know, they all, they all look related, you know. It's like, anyway, you're... Okay, so maybe you look a little younger. I, I would argue you don't. You look just different. We'll put it that way. Um, what does that do for you? Give you 10 years? Right? You've read about these blue zones where people, there's like four or five of these that people have noticed a lot of people, disproportionately high number of people live to be 100, and they're actually healthy. Like, you know, it's, it's health span. All right, 100. Well, you know, if the average, you know, age is 75 or 80, 100, that's pretty cool, but... 20 years in the scheme of things? That's all you got? Blue zones? You know? I'm not, I'm not saying don't be healthy. It doesn't matter. We ought to take care of ourselves. Like we ought to take care of everything God entrusts to us, especially our, our bodies. But there's really no way around this. It makes sense, of course, because we weren't really supposed to die. Even people who are not believers are outraged at death. And the fact that we are always outraged afresh, even though it is the most routine thing in the world, death, all around us. That forest behind this building is living because it's growing out of death, right? That detritus on the ground, that humus that's so rich is from the dying of zillions of things over the years, over the eons. It's the most normal thing in the world, and yet every time it's outrageous to us. It's shocking. It doesn't feel right. You know why? Because we weren't made for death, and it isn't right. Genesis tells us how it came about, and still, all of that protesting and denying and, and taking vitamins and going to the gym and all the stuff, do it, go for it. You, you'll have a better quality of life, probably, and maybe it'll last a hot minute longer. But still, Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So a few things are more certain than the grave, and yet... Here's what Jesus is saying that revolutionizes everything. He says, in this context of Lazarus lying dead, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And so that Sunday, 
Following Jesus' crucifixion on Friday, three days later, the third day, Mary Magdalene and Mary go to the tomb, and he's gone. Why seek you the living among the dead? Why are you looking for living people, you know, in a cemetery? Uh, Matthew 28, 9 and 10, Jesus meets them, the two women, and says, Greetings. They came up to take hold of his feet, and they worship him. And he says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He is alive. He is alive. And what the scriptures tell us is that this is what awaits us. A new spiritual body. It doesn't say spirit, disembodied spirit. It says spiritual body. It's like a third thing. A more real, more substance body. A new creation body that is fit for the new creation, which is more real. It's what God intends without the curse of sin, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us. And Jesus has that body already. In, you know, it's like the future has you know, exploded onto the scene of the present. And what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. You know, it's like that first tomato you pick. Right? And you're like, oh, there's more coming. Look at all the green ones on there. Look at all those little yellow flowers that have a tiny tomato bud below them. And you're excited. You, there's more. It's, it's a harvest of things to come. Just as death came into the world through a man, verse 21 says, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just like Adam, in whom everyone dies, everyone who belongs to Christ, he says, will be given new life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So yes, we do die, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So I want to ask you something. How do we think of those who've preceded us in death. How do we think about them? How do we talk about them? How do we picture them? <coughs> Most everyone in this room, if not everyone, has had somebody that they love precede them in death. This congregation knows a lot about that. And I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge plenty of mystery about what those who die in Christ experience between the end of this life and the beginning of eternity. There's different theories and people take different passages and put them together. I'm not going to comment on that. I don't really know what I think for sure. I'll acknowledge some mystery there. But there's one thing we do know. They yet live. They're alive. This means that when we think about Jimmy Fields or Jonathan Fox or Keith Newport, or Mary Lou Dickerson, and Bob Garrett, and Harold Hampton, and Thomas Dickerson, and Charlie Cruz Sr., and on and on. I mean, I'm leaving out a million people. All the other people I've ever even met that you've, you've lost. We've got to remember the words of Jesus. Though they have died, they yet live. Amen? Amen. Man, that's, that's the most beautiful thing. So the resurrection of Jesus has implications for our life now in that we don't have to live with this, in, under this you know, sort of pale of fear. We can live with hope and optimism and joy. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus brings life beyond sin. 
Life beyond sin. Because like death, sin is also a universal plague. Sin's not something that, you know, the, the, the other religious groups have a problem with and we don't. Or the other person in my family has a problem with, but I don't. Or the other person in the church has a problem with, but I don't. It's universal. One of the most fundamental teachings of Scripture. Going all the way back to the Psalms, for instance. Psalm 143, 2, the psalmist says, Enter not. He's pleading to God. Please don't enter into judgment with me, your servant, for no living one, no one alive is righteous before you. Nobody can stand on a contractual basis with God and make deals or say, you know what? It's amazing God's patience that in the book of Job, he allows Job you know, to do that. That shows how secure God is in himself. He even lets us lament and wonder out loud and complain and blame things on him. And he's still there loving us and pursuing us. But this writer knows, and we should all acknowledge the same thing in our own lives, that we are not righteous. There's no one living who is righteous when compared to the Holy One. August is right. God is holy in that He is completely different. And one of the most fundamental ways He's different is that He's not characterized by sin, and we are. <clears throat> and indeed, sin results in a kind of death. It's not only like death in that it's universal, you know, death and taxes. Ooh, we have to send my thing off tomorrow. <laughs> to hit go on TurboTax. Uh, <clears throat> um, so uh, th there's a kind of death that it results in. Ephesians 2.10, one of many passages uh, that says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you once in, in, once, in which rather you once walked. You were dead. Your sins, they killed you. Sin is another arguably more tragic form of death. And like the fear of death, sin enslaves us while we're alive. Remember when in John 8 when Jesus says, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they say, we've, what are you talking about? We've, we've never been enslaved to anybody but the children of Abraham. Which is bad history since they, had, you know, they were defined by having been enslaved in Egypt and then they were in exile like four, 45 times. And, you know, under Roman occupation when Jesus is you know, uttering these words. But he, that's not really his point. He says, no, if you sin, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Death the fear of death enslaves us, so does sin. And sin is the ultimate death, or leads to it. But again, the resurrection of Christ speaks into this, this situation. It speaks into this problem with a power to free us from the bondage that we all face because of our sins. The resurrection carries power beyond our sin. Now, I want to caveat this because I'm not saying that we gain complete mastery over our sins ever, at least on this side of eternity. We're still sinners. Remember Paul's words in Romans 7 when he says that there is this, however hard he tries, however much he wants on the inside of Paul, to, to obey the law, to obey God. He says there's another law at work here. It's the law of sin and death, quote-unquote, that he cannot personally, from his own power, defeat. Remember Romans 7? And he says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Like my whole body is wired toward sin and death in some sense. He calls it a law. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the resurrection... Instantly, the minute you're 
you know, tap into Jesus and you're baptized into him, that you no longer have a problem with sin, sinning, but the resurrection of Christ creates new life in our mortal bodies, which frees us from the bondage to sin, the results of our sin, the consequences of our sin, the guilt of our sin, and even empowers us to sin less. In that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. In Acts 13, these words are found. Let it be known to you, therefore. I think this is Paul speaking. Probably in, somewhere in Turkey. Antioch, Iconium, Lister, Derby. I don't remember where in the chapter. Antioch, I think. Um, I, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes, who trusts in that, is, notice the verb here. Freed. It's, again, slavery freedom language in all these cases. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Sounds a lot like Paul. Try as you may. You're not going to get there. There's a, there's a slavery to your own failure, your own sin. And yet, the resurrection has something to say about that. In Romans 8, verse 10 Right after Paul has said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the bondage, from, from this body of death? He writes, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, this body of death, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, here's the resurrection power, if that spirit... He's alive. The Spirit of God is, is still alive. If He dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And, and that sounds a little like he's talking only about bodily resurrection here. I don't think he is primarily, though there are, I think, implications of that because the context around it is all about living for the flesh versus living by the Spirit. It's all about sin and trying to avoid sin and how the resurrection and the death of Christ speak to that. So just so that we're aware of that, that is sandwiched by this kind of language. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, verse 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Then he says, the resurrected Christ is going to give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, so you don't have to live according to the flesh. You see the point there? It's about the ability to attack sin and to live righteously in a way that you never could before when it was by your own bootstraps effort. Even if you were sincere as you could be, trying to follow it, and I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better, you've got to have some God inside you or it's never going to work. And his point is, God's still alive, and guess what? He's in you and you're in him. There's this mutual indwelling going on. The resurrection speaks to our problem with sin. Romans 6, if you go back to Romans 6, uh, we all know this passage, I think. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in, uh, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a new way of living that has been uh, facilitated by, effected by, brought about by the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. Not just the death, but the resurrection, newness of life. There's a, uh, let, me, let me just give you this short quote here from uh, Michael Gorman's commentary on Romans. 
Um, he's talking about Romans 8 and Romans 6 and this, how the resurrection relates to our ability to, to be transformed and become more holy. He says this, the newness of life that comes from justification and baptism is animated and enabled by Christ's own power and presence. Not just words on a page. That's not nothing, to be sure. But the word who wrote the word, ultimately, is in you, alive. The consequence in the present for those in Christ is that the body deadened by sin can be resurrected to live a Christ-filled, spirit-empowered life. The indwelling spirit is none other than the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's a song by the band Switchfoot called 24. You should look it up if you've never heard it. A line in there, he's raising the dead in me. Not one day he will, but right now. All the dead, sinful parts of me. It may be looking like it's not. It may take a while. It may back and forth. He's a stock market graph, you know. It's not a rocket launch. But he's raising the dead in me. And of course, sometimes, because of our repeated failures, the guilt, the frustration of not living up to God's expectation, those things make us wonder whether God's actually raising the dead in us at all. Don't they? You ever have those days or those moments where you're like, you're so sick of yourself, so frustrated? You feel like such a failure to God and to others around you? That's right. And I want to say that the guilt and frustration that we feel may actually indicate the opposite of what we're thinking. That guilt and frustration may indicate that we're spiritually alive, actually. That the very newness of life that Christ's resurrection has launched within us is just backlighting the sin more. It, it's, it, we're more aware of it. it. It's set in bolder relief by the, the new life that's in us that we didn't have before. C.S. Lewis, in a classic passage in Mere Christianity, speaks to this with a great illustration. You probably know this one. Think about this in your own frustration when you don't feel like God's doing anything in you or you're failing Him. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. That's when you really start appreciating badness. When you care. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of... Now, he's writing right after World War II. Found out the strength of the German army. I hope that's not, like, present. You know, do that again. Uh, by fighting against it, not giving in. And he actually was in World War I, so he knew about that, too. You find out the strength of a wind. Here's the one I love. A wind. By trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. It could be a sign that you're very much alive and kicking, that the Spirit of God's working on you. So don't give up. The resurrection carries power for us to combat sin. But there's also one more we need to talk about. There's the death-like state of living a life without purpose. Feeling that human existence has no, no real meaning, no, no cosmic significance. That anything we do or anything I pursue will ultimately prove futile anyway, so why bother? 
And, and I want to say, sometimes folks who feel that way, I, I find them a little bit compelling because they're willing to, to, to sort of cry foul when others aren't. They don't want to play the game anymore. Somebody who's totally in a rat race and doesn't really have any purpose or higher meaning just hasn't faced that yet. And these people are like, I'm not, I'm not playing. So I have a lot of empathy or sympathy for, for that mentality. I mean, there is more to life than having a heartbeat, right? Let me say something, though. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also frees us from this kind of zombie-like state of being sort of effectively dead even while we're walking. Life beyond... <laughs> that's the first time I've ever heard that. Life beyond... <laughs> um, keep it coming, though. No, I'm just kidding. He said boss. The, the, oh, loss. I thought you said, like, the word of God is boss. Like, yeah, man. <laughs> kind of another version of amen. I liked it. Life beyond futility. Life beyond futility. Henry David Thoreau wrote, Most men lives, live lives of quiet desperation. You may not know it. People around them may not know it. But inside, they're desperate. And of course, we're good. Human beings are pretty good at, at you know, finding ways, manufacturing ways, or at least trying to come up with purpose in all sorts of, of here and now activities that really don't give us any ultimate purpose. We're good at playing like they do or convincing ourselves that they do. So there's what, for instance, there's what we might call the hurricane party mentality, right? You know, when there's a hurricane coming, people in the Outer Banks who won't, won't evacuate or Charleston or Florida or wherever it is, they're like, nope, we're just going to listen to rock music, see what happens. You know, there's always that guy, that, that, that house or two. Paul says, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. More common is redefining success and meaning in very, very temporal, earthly terms. Right? Like the rich fool in Luke 12, who had convinced himself, or maybe he hadn't quite, but at least functionally it looks like he has, that, that the, the purpose of life is to tear down his barns and build bigger barns and get more stuff and have more ease and, and, and be more security and relax. But Jesus has something to say about that in Luke 12. He says, but God says to this rich fool, who's very successful from a worldly perspective, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, who shall they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. <clears throat> Tragically late discovery, right? When it dawns on you, let's hope that it dawns on you before, way before eternity. You know, wise folks discover before so late a date in life that everything done this side of eternity Everything done under the sun, to use the words of one Old Testament writer, is ultimately done in vain. There was a certain king in Jerusalem. He collected every conceivable pleasure and possession, pretty much the gamut of things that human beings find meaning in and fulfillment and pleasure and joy. He built houses and gardens and parks and orchards. He acquired servants galore. He's probably just laying on a bed of ivory, kind of going like this, you know. And out come the grapes and the fans. And he had massive herds and flocks of livestock and a, and, a, and a 
culture and a society where that was wealth. He's got gold and silver untold. He's acquired musicians. He has many concubines. And still, here's what he finds. This is most likely Solomon the king, at least in my opinion. doesn't matter. Some great king in Jerusalem who had a lot of wisdom and wealth says this, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Greatest ever. More wherewithal, more power to try out everything than anybody who lived before. Things that little guys like me would only dream of, he's done. He's going, let me save you some time. Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't, I didn't keep from them. I, I kept my heart. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was for all my toil. But then I considered, Ecclesiastes 2.11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And that's the refrain of this book. He says this over and over and over and over. Why does it not satisfy? Why does it not give you purpose? Why does it not? Could he be right? I mean, look around us. The whole world disagrees by our actions. Christians struggle with all that stuff, or a lot of it, all the time. If I just had this. If we just could get out of that situation or get into this situation. And it's always stuff under the sun. And the reason that never works is found in the next chapter when he says... God has put eternity in man's heart. Some versions say in his inner parts. As Blaise Pascal wrote in the 17th century, a French Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher, this is a paraphrase more than a, a quote, how he put it, but there's this God-shaped hole that we're, that's built into our, our breast, our heart, and Try as we might, we, we try to force every other shape in there besides God. Um, and it, it never fits. But there is one who gives us a purpose. A mission. The fruits of which transcend this life. A mission that carries implications for eternity. And his name is Jesus. The resurrected one. The one who in John's vision and revelation is a slain lamb who yet stands with the blood on his garments and yet there he is triumphant, dead and alive. His name is Jesus. And he came to bring us a different kind of life, a fuller, less hollow, less artificial kind of life. John 10, 10, he says, I came that they may have life you could have stopped there, but he says this. He adds, and have it abundantly. Abundantly. That isn't prosperity gospel talk. It's not, oh, more of the same stuff that doesn't work. That Ecclesiastes rejected. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a different life. A kind of lived on a different plane from a whole different perspective. That honors the way we were created. What we were created to be. People in God's image. Relating to the rest of creation in the way God commissioned us to relate to it. Not writing our own stories and thinking we can live without God. That's what Eve tries to do. I got it. I'll be sovereign. I'll make my decisions. I'll have God when I need it. Need God and don't like what God's saying. I don't have God. It's in, out, in, out, back and forth. That's a lot of Christianity right there. Jesus says, I want to give you life abundantly. But he's the one who knows what real life is, not us. 
He is the light in the life. It was his words that created life where there was nothing but void. And he calls us to join him in this mission. We're talking about purpose here. To leave behind both the fool's gold of a purpose that won't outlive even our own mortality and also this zombie-like existence of no purpose, really. Christ invites you and me to embrace the purpose for which we are made. It's very telling to me that in the final charge that Jesus gives his disciples, his human representatives on earth, before he ascends to heaven, before he leaves this planet, he is the freshly resurrected Christ who is speaking. And everything he says is about purpose. It's about mission. When, when the disciples, remember how Mary Magdalene and Mary are told when they meet Jesus, come in to you know, dress the body and go through the, the, the appropriate rituals, and there he is alive, and he says, go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee, that I'm going to come there. Well, they do that. And when he comes to them, he says the, the, the verse that we just were reciting earlier in the family Bible time. He says, all authority, some versions say power, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, based on the fact that he is the resurrected one who was and is and who will always be, to use the language of Revelation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the eternally existent one, the I am. He just is existence. He's being. I am that I am. It's that God who's in control, who became flesh in Jesus, who's resurrected from the dead and saying to them, I want you to go. I have a mission for you. I'm sending you out. And this is going to be a, a cosmic purpose. And not only is it going to help other people, it's going to give you the very meaning for which I created you. You're going to go make disciples, people who subscribe to my teachings and my ways, and you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, baptism is when we, we, we reflect the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Not some empty ritual. It's transforming. And you're going to teach these people to observe everything I've commanded you, and you're going to know that I am with you always to the very end of the age, to, to, to the time when eternity is finally consummated, when all the promises that have their yes in Jesus are now not just something we believe and wait on, but something which we realize, which we, we witness the fulfillment of. We've been talking in this church this year about being sent, being a sent people. It's on these banners. It's on our website. And it's the idea of, of mission, of people who've been given a mission. We're not just saved so we can hole up in some enclosure and, you know, launch bombs at people or throw off, you know, Facebook diatribes. We're not, we're not commissioned for a culture war as much as we are to go love people like God loved us. Well, they don't deserve it. Neither do you. No one does. That's, what the, that's how the cross is different. Kill me and I'll still die for you. That, that's our mission. We're sent out by the resurrected one. So our mission, our very mission is, is animated by, empowered by the resurrection. So let's think about that this week. I want to close by posing to us the question that, um, that Jesus asked Martha, the sister of Lazarus, just uh, before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, she doesn't know, for, know that he's going to do that right then. So in her mind, 
Death hangs palpably over the room where they are. Her brother is dead. He's right there. And Jesus is speaking into that situation. This is some theoretical problem for her. Death is, is real, tangible. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Man, does that give you chills? <laughs> me too, brother. And then he says this. Do you believe this? That, that, that's what I'm saying. Do you, will you trust in that? Do you trust it? Do you believe it? My question I want to leave with us this morning is, do, do we believe it? Do, do I really believe it? Do you believe it? If we truly do, we will begin to find that real, free, full life, life is possible. Though we're surrounded by the deadness that comes from meaninglessness or from our own many mistakes or even from mortality itself, the resurrection power of Jesus enables us to live, truly live, even in the midst of death. All right, Nick, thank you for your attention today. If we can help you in any way, let us know by coming to one of these chairs in the middle while together we all stand and sing.